Chapter 9 of In Search of the Unknown by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter 9 When the delegates were appointed to the International Scientific Congress at the Paris Exposition of 1900, how little did anybody imagine that the great conference would end in the most gigantic scandal that ever stirred two continents. Yet had it not been for the pair of American newspapers published in Paris, this scandal would never have been aired, for the continental press is so well muzzled that when it bites its teeth merely meet in the empty atmosphere with a discreet snap. But to the Yankee nothing excepting the Monroe Doctrine is sacred, and the unsopped watchdogs of the press bite right and left unmuzzled. The biter bites. It is his profession. And that ends the affair. The bitee is bitten, and in the deplorable argo of the hour, it is up to him. So now that the scandal has been well aired and hung out to dry in the teeth of decency and the four winds, and as all the details have been cheerfully and grossly exaggerated, it is, perhaps, the proper moment for the truth to be written by the only person whose knowledge of all the facts in the affair entitles him to speak for himself as well as for those honorable ladies and gentlemen whose names and titles have been so mercilessly criticized. These, then, are the simple facts. The International Scientific Congress, now adjourned sine die, met at nine o'clock in the morning, May 3, 1900, in the Tasmanian pavilion of the Paris Exposition. There were present the most famous scientists of Great Britain, France, Germany, Russia, Italy, Switzerland, and the United States. His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince of Monaco, presided. It is not necessary now to repeat the details of that preliminary meeting. It is sufficient to say that committees representing the various known sciences were named and appointed by the Prince of Monaco, who had been unanimously elected permanent chairman of the conference. It is the composition of a single committee that concerns us now, and that committee, representing the science which treats of bird life, was made up as follows. Chairman, His Royal Highness, the Crown Prince of Monaco. Members, Sir Peter Grebe, Great Britain. Baron de Becas, France. His Royal Highness, King Christian of Finland, the Countess d'Alzette of Belgium, and I, from the United States, representing the Smithsonian Institution and the Bronx Park Zoological Society of New York. This, then, was the composition of that now notorious ornithological committee, a modest, earnest, self-effacing little band of workers, bound together, in the beginning, by those ties of mutual respect and esteem which unite all laborers in the vineyard of science. From the first meeting of our committee, science, the great leveller, left no artificial barriers of rank or title standing between us. We were enthusiasts in our love for ornithology. 
we found new inspiration in the democracy of our common interests. As for me, I chatted with my fellows, feeling no restraint myself and perceiving none. The King of Finland and I discussed his latest monograph on the speckled titmouse, and I was glad to agree with the King in all his theories concerning the nesting habits of that important bird. Sir Peter Grebe, a large red gentleman in tweeds, read us some notes he had made on the domestic hen and her reasons for running ahead of a horse and wagon instead of stepping aside to let the disturbing vehicle pass. The Crown Prince of Monaco took issue with Sir Peter. So did the Baron de Becas, and we were entertained by a friendly and marvellously interesting three-corner dispute, shared in by three of the most profound thinkers of the century. I shall never forget the brilliancy of that argument, nor the modest, good-humoured retorts which gave us all a glimpse into depths of erudition which impressed us profoundly, and set the seal on the bonds which held us so closely together. Alas, that the seal should ever have been broken! Alas, that the glittering apple of discord should have been flung into our midst! No, not flung, but gently rolled under our noses, by the gloved fingers of the lovely Countess d'Alzette. Monsieur, said the fair Countess, when all present, excepting she and I, had touched upon or indicated the subjects which they had prepared to present to the Congress. Monsieur, mes confrères, I have been requested by our distinguished chairman, the Crown Prince of Monaco, to submit to your judgment the subject which, by favour of the King of the Belgians, I have prepared to present to the International Scientific Congress. She made a pretty curtsy as she named her own sovereign, and we all rose out of respect to that most austere and moral ruler, the King of Belgium. But, she said, with a charming smile of depreciation, I am very, very much afraid that the subject which I have chosen may not meet with your approval, gentlemen. She stood there in her dainty Parisian gown and bonnet, shaking her pretty head and certainly, a smile on her lips, her small gloved fingers interlocked. Oh, I know how dreadful it would be if this great Congress should be compelled to listen to any hoax like that which Monsieur de Rougemont imposed on the British Royal Society, she said gravely, and because the subject of my paper is as strange as the strangest phenomenon alleged to have been noted by Monsieur de Rougemont, I hesitate. She glanced at the silent listeners around her. Sir Peter's red face had hardened. The King of Finland frowned slightly. The Crown Prince of Monaco and Baron de Becas wore anxious smiles. But when her violet eyes met mine, I gave her a glance of encouragement, and that glance, I am forced to confess, was not dictated by scientific approval, but by something that never entirely dries up in the mustiest and dustiest of savants, the old Adam implanted in us all. Now I knew perfectly well what her subject must be. So did every man present, for it was no secret 
that his majesty of belgium had been swindled by some natives in tasmania and had paid a very large sum of money for a skin of that gigantic bird the ox which has been so often reported to exist among the inaccessible peaks of the tasmanian mountains needless perhaps to say that the skin proved a fraud being nothing more than a barnum contrivance made up out of the skins of a dozen ostriches and cassowaries and most cleverly put together by chinese workmen at least such was the report made on it by sir peter grebe who had been sent by the british society to antwerp to examine the acquisition needless also perhaps to say that king leopold of belgium stoutly maintained that the skin of the ox was genuine from beak to claw for six months there had been a most serious difference of opinion among european ornithologists concerning the famous ox in the antwerp museum and this difference had promised to result in an open quarrel between a few belgian savants on one side and all europe and great britain on the other scientists have a deep-rooted horror of anything that touches on charlatanism the taint of trickery not only alarms them but drives them away from any suspicious subject and usually ruins scientifically speaking the person who has introduced the subject for discussion therefore it took no little courage for the countess de alzette to touch with her dainty gloves a subject which every scientist in europe with scarcely an exception had pronounced fraudulent and unworthy of investigation and to bring it before the great international congress required more courage still for the person who could face in executive session the most brilliant intellects in the world and openly profess faith in a barnumized bird-skin either had no scientific reputation to lose or was possessed of a bravery far above that of the savants who composed the audience now when the pretty countess caught a flash of encouragement in my glance she turned rosy with gratification and surprise clearly she had not expected to find a single ally in the entire congress her quick smile of gratitude touched me and made me ashamed too for i had encouraged her out of the pure love of mischief hoping to hear the whole matter threshed before the congress and so have it settled once for all it was a thoughtless thing to do on my part i should have remembered the consequences to the countess if it were proven that she had been championing a fraud the ruffled dignity of the congress would never forgive her her scientific career would practically be at an end because her theories and observations could no longer command respect or even the attention of those who knew that she herself had once been deceived by a palpable fraud i looked at her guiltily already ashamed of myself for encouraging her to her destruction how lovely and innocent she appeared standing there reading her notes in a low clear voice fresh as a child's with now and then a delicious upward sweep of her long dark lashes with a start i came to my senses and bestowed a pinch on myself this was neither the time nor the place to sentimentalize over a girlish beauty 
whose small Parisian head was crammed full of foolish brave theories concerning an imposition which her aged sovereign had been unable to detect. I saw the gathering frown on the King of Finland's dark face. I saw Sir Peter Grebe grow redder and redder, and press his thick lips together to control the angry BOSH, which need not have been uttered to have been understood. The Baron de Becas wore a painfully neutral smile, which froze his face into a quaint gargoyle. The Crown Prince of Monaco looked at his polished fingernails with a startled yet abstracted resignation. Clearly the young Countess had not a sympathizer in the committee. Something, perhaps it was the latent chivalry which exists embedded in us all, perhaps it was pity, perhaps a glimmering dawn of belief in the uckskin set my thoughts working very quickly. The Countess to Alzette finished her notes, then glanced around with a deprecating smile, which died out on her lips when she perceived the silent and stony hostility of her fellow scientists. A quick expression of alarm came into her lovely eyes. Would they vote against giving her a hearing before the Congress? It required a unanimous vote to reject a subject. She turned her eyes on me. I rose, red as fire, my head humming with a chaos of ideas, all disordered and vague, yet whirling along in a single resistless current. I had come to the Congress, prepared to deliver a monograph on the great auk. But now the subject went overboard, as the birds themselves had, and I found myself pleading with the committee to give the Countess a hearing on the ox. "'Why not?' I exclaimed warmly. "'It is established beyond question that the ox does exist in Tasmania. Wallace saw several oxen through his telescope, walking about upon the inaccessible heights of the Tasmanian mountains. Darwin acknowledged that the bird exists. Professor Farrago has published a pamphlet containing an accumulation of all data bearing upon the ox. Why should not Madame la Comtesse be heard by the entire Congress?' I looked at Sir Peter Grebe. "'Have you seen this alleged bird-skin in the Antwerp Museum?' he asked, perspiring with indignation. "'Yes, I have,' said I. "'It has been patched up, but how are we to know that the skin did not require patching? I have not found that ostrich-skin has been used. It is true that the Tasmanians may have shot the bird to pieces and mended the skin with bits of cassowary hide here and there, but the greater part of the skin, and the beak and claws, are, in my estimation, well worth the serious attention of savants. To pronounce them fraudulent is, in my opinion, rash and premature. I mocked my brow. I was in for it now. I had thrown in my reputation with the reputation of the Countess. The displeasure and astonishment of my confreres was unmistakable. In the midst of a strained silence, I moved that a vote be taken upon the advisability of a hearing before the Congress on the subject of the ox. After a pause, the young Countess, pale and determined, seconded my motion. The result of the balloting was a foregone conclusion. 
the countess had one vote, she herself refraining from voting, and the subject was entered on the committee book as acceptable and a date set for the hearing before the International Congress. The effect of this vote on our little committee was most marked. Constraint took the place of cordiality. Polite reserve replaced that guileless and open-hearted courtesy with which our proceedings had begun. With icy politeness, the Crown Prince of Monaco asked me to state the subject of the paper I proposed to read before the Congress, and I replied quietly that, as I was partly responsible for advocating the discussion of the Ux, I proposed to associate myself with the Countess d'Alzette in that matter, if Madame la Comtesse would accept the offer of a brother savant. "'Indeed I will,' she said impulsively, her blue eyes soft with gratitude. "'Very well,' observed Sir Peter Grebe, swallowing his indignation and waddling off towards the door. "'I shall resign my position on this committee. Yes, I will, I tell you!' as the King of Finland laid a fatherly hand on Sir Peter's sleeve. I'll not be made responsible for this damn— He choked, sputtered, then bowed to the horrified Countess, asking pardon, and declaring that he yielded to nobody in respect for the gentler sex, and he retired with the Baron de Becas. But out in the hallway I heard him explode. Confound it! This is no place for petticoats, Baron! And as for that Yankee ornithologist, he's hung himself with the Countess's corset string. Yes, he has. Don't tell me, Baron. The young idiot was all right until the Countess looked at him, I tell you. Cat, how she crumpled him up with those blue eyes of hers. What the devil do women come into such committees for, eh? It's an outrage, I tell you. Why, the whole world will jeer at us if we sit and listen to her monograph on that fraudulent bird. The young countess, who was riding near the window, could not have heard this outburst. But I heard it, and so did King Christian and the Crown Prince of Monaco. Lord, thought I, the countess and I are in the frying-pan this time. I'll do what I can to keep us both out of the fire. When the king and the Crown Prince had made their adieu to the countess, and she had responded, pale and serious, they came over to where I was standing, looking out on the Seine. "'Though we must differ from you,' said the king kindly, "'we wish you all success in this dangerous undertaking.' I thanked him. "'You are a young man to risk a reputation already established,' remarked the Crown Prince, then added, "'You are braver than I. Ridicule is a barrier to all knowledge.' And though we know that, we seekers after truth always bring up short at that barrier and dismount, not daring to put our hobbies to the fence. One can but come a cropper, said I, and risk staking our hobbies? No, no, that would make us ridiculous, and ridicule kills in Europe. It's somewhat deadly in America, too, I said, smiling. The more honor to you said the Crown Prince gravely. "'Oh, I am not the only one,' I answered lightly. "'There is my confrere, Professor Hyssop, who studies apparitions and braves a contempt and ridicule which none of us would dare challenge. 
We Yankees are learning slowly. Some day we will find the lost key to the future, while Europe is sneering at those who are trying to pick the lock. When King Christian of Finland and the Crown Prince of Monaco had taken their hats and sticks and departed, I glanced across the room at the young countess, who was now working rapidly on a typewriter, apparently quite oblivious of my presence. I looked out of the window again, and my gaze wandered over the exposition grounds. Gilt and scarlet and azure, the palaces rose in every direction under a wilderness of fluttering flags. Towers, minarets, turrets, golden spires cut the blue sky. In the west, the gaunt Eiffel Tower sprawled across the glittering esplanade. Behind it rose the solid golden dome of the Emperor's tomb, gilded once more by the Almighty Sun, to amuse the living rabble while the dead slumbered in his imperial crypt, himself now but a relic for the amusement of the people whom he had despised. O oh, tempora, O oh, mores, O oh, Napoleon! Down under my window, in the asphalted court, the king of Finland was entering his beautiful Victoria. An adjutant, wearing a cocked hat and brilliant uniform, mounted the box beside the green and gold coachman. The two postilions straightened up in their saddles. The four horses danced. Then, when the crown prince of Monaco had taken a seat beside the king, the carriage rolled away and far down the quay I watched it, until the flutter of the green and white plumes in the adjutant's cocked hat was all I could see of vanishing royalty. I was still musing there by the window, listening to the click and ringing of the typewriter, when I suddenly became aware that the clicking had ceased, and turning I saw the young countess standing beside me. Thank you for your chivalrous impulse to help me she said frankly, holding out her bare hand. I bent over it. I had not realized how desperate my case was, she said with a smile. I supposed that they would at least give me a hearing. How can I thank you for your brave vote in my favor? By giving me your confidence in this matter, said I gravely. If we are to win, we must work together, and work hard, madame. We are entering a struggle, not only to prove the genuineness of a bird-skin and the existence of a bird which neither of us has ever seen, but also a struggle which will either make us famous forever, or render it impossible for either of us ever again to face a scientific audience. I know it, she said quietly, and I understand all the better how gallant a gentleman I have had the fortune to enlist in my cause. Believe me, had I not absolute confidence in my ability to prove the existence of the ox, I should not, selfish as I am, have accepted your chivalrous offer to stand or fall with me. The subtle emotion in her voice touched a responsive chord in me. I looked at her earnestly. She raised her beautiful eyes to mine. Will you help me? she asked. Would I help her? Faith, I'd pass the balance of my life turning flip-flaps to please her. I did not attempt to undeceive myself. 
I realized that the lightning had struck me, that I was desperately in love with the young countess, from the tip of her bonnet to the toe of her small polished shoe. I was curiously cool about it, too, although my heart gave a thump that nigh choked me, and I felt myself going red from temple to chin. If the Countess d'Alzette noticed it, she gave no sign, unless the pink tint under her eyes, deepening, was a subtle signal of understanding to the signal in my eyes. Suppose, she said, that I failed before the Congress to prove my theory. Suppose my investigations resulted in the exposure of a fraud, and my name was held up to ridicule before all Europe. What would become of you, monsieur? I was silent. You are already celebrated as the discoverer of the mammoth and the great auk, she persisted. You are young, enthusiastic, renowned, and you have a future before you that anybody in the world might envy. I said nothing. And yet, she said softly, you risk all because you will not leave a young woman friendless among her confreres. It is not wise, monsieur. It is gallant and generous and impulsive, but it is not wisdom. Don Quixote rides no more in Europe, my friend. He stays at home, seventy million of him, in America, said I. After a moment she said, I believe you, monsieur. It is true enough, I said with a laugh. We are the only people who tilt at windmills these days. We and our cousins, the British, who taught us. I bowed gaily and added, With your colors to wear, I shall have the honor of breaking a lance against the biggest windmill in the world. You mean the Citadel of Science, she said, smiling. And it's rock-ribbed respectability, I replied. She looked at me thoughtfully, rolling and unrolling the scroll in her hands. Then she sighed, smiled, and brightened, handing me the scroll. Read it carefully, she said. It is an outline of the policy I suggest that we follow. You will be surprised at some of the statements. Yet every word is the truth. And, monsieur, your reward for the devotion you have offered will be no greater than you deserve, when you find yourself doubly famous for our joint monograph on the ox. Without your vote in the committee I should have been denied a hearing, even though I produced proofs to support my theory. I appreciate that. I do most truly appreciate the courage which prompted you to defend a woman at the risk of your own ruin. Come to me this evening at nine. I hold for you in store a surprise and pleasure which you do not dream of. Ah, oh, but I do, I said slowly, under the spell of her delicate beauty and enthusiasm. How can you, she said, laughing, you don't know what awaits you at nine this evening. You, I said, fascinated. The color swept her face. She dropped me a deep curtsy. At nine, then, she said, number eight, Rue de Alouette. I bowed, took my hat, gloves, and stick, 
and attended her to her carriage below. Long after the blue and black Victoria had whirled away down the crowded quay, I stood looking after it, mazed in the web of that ancient enchantment, whose spell fell over the first man in Eden, and whose sorcery shall not fail till the last man returns his soul. End of chapter 9